Yeah, they, I mean, this this happens every time. Like, we have, we both have that same thought every time we do a movie like this, which is why, like, we've had to kind of radically expand the palette of the podcast to also include, you know, art films and stuff. Because, like, otherwise we would just go crazy and we would not be able to keep doing this. Like, there's only so much liberal and conservative and, like, centrist kitsch that you can take at one time. But, like, I always have, there's always the same series of thoughts I have watching a movie like this. One is, who is it for? Two is, how much can there possibly be left in this movie? Usually I think it's about 20 minutes, and usually I find I'm actually only about 20 minutes into it. And then, and then uh, relatedly, and thirdly, like, you know, you get 20 minutes into a movie like this, and you think, how much more can it possibly have to say? Like, everything has already been said. Where do we go? How do we fill another hour with this? And some, somehow these movies always seem to have the answer. Well, especially lately. I've, have we watched, like, five of these documentaries <laughs> with the exact same thesis, all of which came out in 2020? Uh, so, sorry, I'm, I'm not being articulate. I, I'm, I just feel like I'm going insane. <laughs> I'm, I was just like, who is this movie for? Like, what what's the audience for this? I mean, obviously, it's all these people who are so far up their own asses that they think that if, you know, some schmuck turns on Showtime or whatever and sees this, that suddenly, whatever, he'll, you know, buy into the J.D. Vance uh, Senate campaign in Ohio or whatever their plan is, but... I was like, who is this actually for? Like, it makes no... I don't know what the audience of this movie is. Like, why would anyone watch this? Well, all that and more coming up on Michael and Us. Hello, as always, I am Will Sloan with my esteemed co-host, Luke Savage. Hello, everyone. And we're very pleased to welcome, as our third mic this week, uh, Alex Shepard of The New Republic. Welcome, Alex. Hey, it's good to be here. Yes, well, thank you for coming. We've definitely read, I think you'll be familiar to most of our listeners, we definitely read from your articles before on the show. I, I think we've read from your article about the Rally to Restore Sanity, or, or at least one where you mentioned it uh, a few times, because the Rally to Restore Sanity is an event uh, very near and dear to the show. It's kind of forms the, the spiritual center of the show, as well as being the thing which I think continues to inform both Will and my own politics uh, to this day. It's kind of our, our beacon star. But uh, before we get into the movie that we subjected you today, which, uh, by the way, to, to all you listeners, when uh, I pitched this idea to Alex, I said it is absolutely not mandatory that you watch the movie. If you just want to come on and talk about this thing you wrote, totally fine. But Alex dutifully uh, subjected himself to uh, this movie, which was which is called uh, Stars and Strife, which we're going to talk about. I swear I'm not making that up. That is what the title of the movie is. But the main reason uh, I wanted to have Alex on was to discuss an article uh, he wrote a few days ago for The New Republic called David Brooks and the Endless Grift of the Conservative Commentariat. Now, um, I think this David Brooks story is amazing. And uh, I mean, my impression is that it's kind of flying below the radar. This should be a bigger deal, it seems to me. And before we get into your argument uh, in the piece, Alex, maybe you could, for the listeners that, that aren't aware of what's going on with David Brooks, what is happening with his column and what's the, what's the background on this? Yeah, so David Brooks, uh, you know, mascot of sort of buttoned up conservatism on the New York Times editorial page for the last two years has been hyping at various points this project that he started called Weave, which is associated with the Aspen Institute. It is a profoundly David Brooks-y project in which 
There are lots of sort of vague sociological claims about how people aren't connecting anymore, and it's because they're hyper-individualists, and what we need to do as a culture is to, I guess, like hang out together or something, as if like anyone should be taking their social cues from David Brooks. So he's been hyping this for a long time. It's, been, it's largely gone under the radar, I think, partly because nobody really reads or cares about David Brooks when he isn't saying something completely racist or insane anymore. But what happens is a week ago, he writes a very David Brooksy blog about Facebook groups and how they're actually the sort of key to coming up with this, uh, this way to weave that people all over are feeling isolated and they go on Facebook, as we all know, and what they do is they have warm connections with other people, which is completely insane, right? Because Facebook is like the engine of so much of the hate in the world. But there's a few problems here, aside from the premise of the piece. One is that Brooks never cleared doing this with his editors at the Times. And two, it, it sort of starts to reveal this big other problem, ethical problem, that Brooks has been taking money from Facebook. Uh, he's been taking money from Jeff Bezos's father, who I believe used to be a juggler. I might be wrong about that. Um, but as part of this, he's been drawing a second salary. None of this has been disclosed to the Times' readers. Brooks basically acts as if this whole story is a big joke. He goes on PBS and appears to lie about it. He claims that this has always been transparent, even though it hasn't. Finally, Brooks resigns from this project, although he's still working at the Times. And I think, you know, one thing that's crazy to me is that it seems like there won't really be any serious repercussions for this, even though it's a pretty profound ethical lapse. I can name a bunch of prominent Canadian public intellectuals, quote unquote, who, you know, give speeches on behalf of oil companies and also talk about oil on the news and face no repercussions for that. Like, I mean, in the sense that, like, he's been caught for this, but it's it's very common. And that's one reason why he's able to dismiss it as something not worth taking seriously. This is, I think, the thing that it points to for me as well, is that I think on the right in particular, I mean, this is true for all major U.S. members of the commentariat. But if you are on the right, you are then going to get paid big, big money to speak at conventions. You're going to get book deals. You're going to go on these college campus tours. You're going to be raking in money from all these things. And those kinds of ethical uh, questions are never raised. I think this is a little different just in that the involvement of Facebook itself, which Brooks has been largely very cheery about, uh, is there. But uh, and I think the duplicity as well. I think, you know, for people that if you've never worked in the media or adjacent to it, you've never worked for like a nonprofit or a major corporation that hosts conferences or whatever, you may not realize like the extent to which people who work in the media, at least in big marquee positions and, and politics as well, just like just how much money that they often draw from these kind of speaking circuits, just how many resources are kind of tied up when a conference is put on or something by a bank in just like speaking fees that a lot of these people have agencies that you know, kind of auction them out for fees that just like if you have a if you're a normal person with a normal salary, just like defy belief. And a lot of this is not really transparent at all. And I suspect the reason you know, I hadn't even really thought of it until you said so just now, Alex, but I suspect the reason why this story has not, uh, it, it seems to me gotten the attention I think it deserves is because if you take down David Brooks, or if David Brooks faces consequences for this, so many more people are are caught up in doing almost the same thing, even if he did a, a particularly kind of um, overt uh, sort of version of it. But can, can we talk a little more about uh, the specific concept here? Because this is sort of what tickled me about it is this 
this idea of weave and this initiative with the uh, Aspen Institute uh, at repairing the country's social fabric, it strikes me as a very like Tom Friedman-esque idea. Like it seems to me that another grift of the sort of uh, centrist commentariat for a long time has just been making up these sort of vague concepts, like very vague metaphors. With Tom Friedman, it was the world is flat. Uh, with a fellow who appears in um, the movie that uh, we watched today, uh, in fact, director of the film, he wrote a book called The World is Curved, which was a response to Thomas Friedman. And it just sort of seems like every 10 years or every five years, one of these guys will come out with some like big idea that's just like the same sort of vague metaphor about how the world is gr is growing faster and more interconnected, like, but repackaged. So what is the conceit of Weave? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's in some ways a sort of difficult question to answer because the project itself is so astoundingly <laughs> so the I think you know like the movie I was thinking the movie could be called like the hot dog man the movie or whatever the I think you should leave me where we're like I'm trying to find out who did this because you're like they're saying we want to the problem with the country is that people don't trust each other they don't get along they're disconnected and that's the root cause there's no other cause we're going to fix that and you're like well wait a second like people didn't just start bowling alone because they felt like it, right? Like there are other socioeconomic issues at play, but he's like, no, if we get people to just like sit down and they, and stop being so individualistic, then they can come together and we can just solve homelessness. Right. We don't have to give anybody more money. We don't have to reform the economic system. We can just do all of this stuff. And I think for Brooks, this is also this outgrowth in like his kind of, his late post-divorce period in which he's basically become this kind of weird, he's lost his influence, any influence at all over the Republican Party and has tried to kind of rebrand himself as this guru who can teach people how to live a moral life. But again, why anyone would go to David Brooks to do that is a kind of bigger question. Well, as you alluded to earlier, it's funny that he is positioning Facebook as like this platform for the exchange of ideas and the building of community since it runs it runs so up against the prevailing zeitgeist that actually Facebook is the problem. Facebook is this breeding ground of hate and misinformation and division. I mean, I'm not quite sure how he's how he's able to sell this argument just even on its own merits, given the places that he writes for and giving the prevailing climate. This is a document that's aimed at donors, right? Like when you look at these things that are about finding the right balance between the self and society, right? And figuring out uh, ways to stop being so individualistic and to find a new kind of morality that's based on self-sufficiency and, and happiness. Like these things don't make sense to anybody, but they make sense within a pitch deck to jeff bezos's father or whatever <laughs> like the idea of a project like this it's not clear what they actually do in the world like they what they do i guess is they manufacture ideas about bringing people together but the problem is that like you know david brooks isn't starting community centers right like the idea is that you can somehow via these like exercises come up with a way to interact with society in a way that is more productive I mean, you know, it sounds like a cult a lot of the time when you start to read the actual documents because it's all about like, you know, giving up, you know, the scourges of hyper individualism, caring more about the community and the group. And yeah, and, and Brooks himself is somebody who, you know, despite his kind of 
credentials as this sort of pop sociologist has never done anything like this at all. And why you would ever trust David Brooks to sort of set your social calendar is beyond me. You know, believe it or not, I think one of the last like live events that I attended before the pandemic was an event in Toronto where David and Arthur Brooks, uh, who appears in the movie we watched today, they were debating Katrina Vanden Heuvel and Yanis Varoufakis, who won the uh, won the debate. I can't remember what the question of the debate was. You know, it had something to do with you know capitalism, yes or no, or something. And uh, yeah, Varoufakis and Vanden Heuvel. Uh, one, but uh, David Brooks had a whole kind of story that he told there, which I'd never heard before. I didn't realize that part of his his self mythology is that he used to be a socialist, and he kept pointing to this clip. And basically, the story is this was his in his opening statement at the event, and then he later turned it into a uh, into his his column for that week. So two birds with one stone um, couldn't be bothered to write a separate column. Uh, had to file something. But, you know, he basically said, you know, I was a socialist until I sat down on TV and had to debate Milton Friedman. And he owned me so hard with logic that I stopped being a socialist. And I, I went back and I found the debate. And like the arguments Brooks are making just sound like those of any kind of like centrist liberal. Like there's nothing socialist about them. And I think he's maybe 23 or 24 at the time. And he's like maybe a year out from going to work at like the National Review. So I have still found no evidence that uh, David Brooks was ever a socialist in any kind of like meaningful sense. And I find it very frustrating that these kind of house intellect, this is just a pet peeve now, this is less related to the conversation we're having, but it's a pet peeve of mine that these like house intellectuals of American conservatism so rarely know anything about the ideas that they criticize. And Brooks seems like no exception to that. But just turning, before we get to the movie, just turning to uh, kind of the the, the core argument of your piece, which uh, sort of uh, appears in the final graphs, you develop a kind of larger argument about sort of conservative punditry and conservative columnists. Now, I think people are starting to understand how much of a grift this is a little more. I think in the post-Trump era, I think Trump really kind of, his ascendancy when all these people tried to uh, stop him and basically it turned out they had no influence at all. I think that's really damaged their credibility and, and their sort of position as like the supposed intellectual leaders of this thing which calls itself a movement. But, you know, I think Brooks is, unlike a lot of these people, has been able to retain a certain respectability um, despite all this. So kind of what's your argument about, what do you think this incident says about the kind of culture of conservative punditry? Well, I think you just got into a little bit of it a moment ago where Brooks's entire career is based on these kind of, we'll say, sort of creative uses of the truth, right? So Brooks may have been somebody who is, you know, a center-left person, right? But he becomes a socialist, right? And he becomes a socialist because there's a long-standing narrative in conservative media of the of the convert, right? Of a socialist who encounters the primacy of, of conservative ideas and has no choice but to renounce Marx and Lenin and accept you know, Friedrich Hayek or whatever. Uh, so he does that first, right? And then his entire career from then on becomes based on similar, we'll call it sh- shading, right? Where uh, he becomes this great observer of American political life and that there are, there are red people are on Team Red and then there's people on Team Blue. And the people on Team Blue, they like lattes, right? They like to go to the opera. They like to feel good about their cultural consumption, right? The idea that, for instance, you know, that working class people or non-white people make up this is always kind of elided. Instead, you know, these are people, they hire illegal immigrants, 
And then there's people on the red team. And these people are like red blooded Americans. They love, you know, hot dogs and drinking beer and going to NASCAR. And that made Brooks somewhat ironically, this hugely popular figure among center left people, because he was explaining a version of the country in the early 2000s that I think resonated with a lot of people. This is the Jon Stewart moment, but it was also the David Brooks moment, this era in which people were hungry to have this, you know, they, they couldn't make sense of George W. Bush and Brooks could do that for them. But all the while he's retaining the oldest conservative grift of them all, which is basically making the case that any attempt for the government to solve any any problem is bad, right? That there's some sort of uh, big business or some sort of entrepreneur that can come in. Any union, that's bad. The teachers' union, they're bad. We can always find some new way of doing this that involves the oldest thing in the world, which is just empowering rich people forever. And Brooks himself, I think, has largely been pretty isolated for the last 10 years. He was Obama's favorite, favorite <laughs> yeah. columnist, which is something maybe we could talk about. But the thing that he's held on to is this one core idea, which is that you know the columnist goes out and he writes these columns that are just about how great big business is. And big business then rewards the columnist with speaking engagements. And in this case, a think tank that makes very little sense at all. It is truly incredible. Like, I mean, it's, it's true that Brooks, his influence has declined. And in a way, I mean, you know, as I think the Trump ascendancy showed, like rank and file conservatives were not sitting around uh, reading David Brooks's columns where uh, he explains sandwiches to people and he like has an Ovid or, 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 you know, a, a Virgil quote for everything or, or whatever. But he was a very influential figure. And in the kind of bizarre way that a lot of these kind of conservative house intellectuals, um, the late Charles Krauthammer being an, another example of this, uh, often these people, their actual function is less to be sort of intellectual leaders um, for uh, rank and file conservatives or kind of average members of the Republican Party and more to kind of sell the project to an upper crust liberal audience. And in that sense, David Brooks is a very influential figure. One of my favorite anecdotes, uh, which I've mentioned on the show a number of times, is that uh, back in 2009, in like two or three weeks into the Obama administration, something like that, David Brooks writes this column where he basically says, big government is back. Tax and spend liberalism is back. Um, the Obama people uh, see this column because, of course, uh, they're all reading David Brooks. What does David Brooks have to say about, you know, our stimulus plan is like the first thing that they, they're waking up in a cold sweat at night uh, thinking about that. And they get back to Brooks and he writes a column a few days later where he basically is says like, don't worry, guys, they assured me they fully accept Reaganism. They want to do entitlement cuts. They want something or other to be deficit neutral. And, uh, you know, basically Brooks goes from proclaiming like moderation is dead to being like, oh, it's OK, like Obama doesn't actually want to do anything. And I mean, I don't want to over exaggerate Brooks's, you know, influence here, but I think it's very telling that in the early Obama presidency, when Obama had probably more political capital and legislative clout, given the majority that he just won in the House and in the Senate, um, than any any modern U.S. president. I mean, for for just for decades, it was considered a ma a priority in the Obama White House to be like, we have to we have to reassure David Brooks that we're not abandoning Ronald Reagan, like we're not abandoning Reaganomics, you know. I, I've been thinking about this exact thing a lot lately, and I think that there's a danger of overstating it. However, I think what is abundantly clear is that Obama was desperate for reasonable Republicans, reasonable conservatives to speak to. There were none in Congress, right? He could not find one at all. So they found David Brooks, and David Brooks became 
this kind of figure. And it was almost like Obama was negotiating over a lot of these things with Brooks to win over David Brooks in a way that I think, especially if you look at the kinds of sort of policy wins from the first 50 days of the Biden administration, it's hard not to conclude that that effort or that instinct from the Obama administration was, I think, profoundly damaging to the country. <laughs> well, we're talking about issues of grifts in the media. And one popular grift I would propose to you is the genre of the centrist political documentary. Uh, who watches these movies? Why do people make them? It's perhaps an unsolvable question, but there are many of them. And they are all very well financed with the cream of the crop appearing as talking head interviews. In recent weeks, we've talked about Alexandra Pelosi. We talked about that other movie whose name I'm already forgetting that Meghan McCain produced. The, re the Reunited States, co-produced by Meghan McCain and Van Jones. And now I would like to complete this trilogy of episodes with, I think... You know, I was going to say the best one yet, but it's not the best one yet. But it's 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 an interesting new dimension to this genre because it's a I would say a liberalish version of this. And it is a film called Stars and Strife, directed by author, investor and filmmaker, not to mention change maker. David Smick. Well, you know you what's said that when it was You invited me on is here. You feckless They're the enemy. No, I will not be. Willing to bring this country to its knees. Not the American way. Why? I'm worried about our country gorging on hate. Something's gone very wrong in the fabric of American society, which leaves people vulnerable to the appeal of the political hate industry. We've always had partisanship. We've never had this level of dysfunction. But both of our major political parties contains a lot of old people, and before people reach the stage of dementia, they often turn nasty. Are you stupid? All the damn time! We live in a zero-sum world. We are absolutely convinced that for one side to get ahead, the other side has got to lose. We do face this real danger of a center falling apart in the country being guided by the extremists on both sides. America is like a dysfunctional couple on the way to divorce court. Politics isn't broken, it's fixed. I said that this was a liberal movie, and it's kind of a survey of America and her problems circa 2020. As these movies often begin, we see footage of uh, people marching in Charlottesville, Black Lives Matter protesters, uh, you know, all, sort, all sorts of unpleasant imagery, <laughs> all equated in this big soup. And David Smick, the mastermind of this film, says that before we had the coronavirus, we had another virus that was raging through America, and that virus was hate. America had become too divisive. But what separates this movie from other movies of its ilk is David Smick and his murderer's row of talking head interviewees <laughs> are willing to cede that capitalism has let people down. Their solution to save capitalism, we need to return to capitalism. Uh, a, a different kind of capitalism. A, a multitude of other issues are brought up in this film. There's social media, journalism, the 24-hour news cycle, big money and its influence on politics. But I would say overwhelmingly this movie is a defense of capitalism and, and an attempt to kind of take the conversation away from 
socialism and click our heels like Dorothy and say that the solution has been right in front of us all along. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, this movie is, uh, drove me. I think by the end, I was just looking at my notes from it and I think I had, I watched it at six in the morning, which is not a great (laughs) idea in general, but, but I was just basically writing all cap notes, calling Neil Ferguson a dumbass by about 40 minutes in. (laughs) I mean, I do now think a lot about cows and economics, so. (laughs) I will add that uh, something that I think makes this film uh, somewhat unique among, uh, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to exaggerate how kind of heterogeneous these films are. It's literally, they're just making the same movie over and over again. But a different shade of this movie, shall we say, is the fact that it really dials up the American exceptionalism. It is explicitly pro-American empire in a way that I think you do not see a lot of the time. Sometimes I think this type of film, you know, the American empire is sort of an invisible character in it. It's kind of implied, but not explicitly mentioned. But the the sort of elite cast, the sort of like Brahmin character of the talking heads in this film is such that like these are these, I think these people are kind of real ideologues for, I, I don't know, the, the U.S. global project. And that that's very much kind of what you get from them. In the opening frames, there's a lot of stuff about how, like, you know, in the first few minutes, like, America's suffering imperial decline. There's something about, like, uh, you know, most empires historically only last 250 years or so. Guess how old America is? Uh, and then there's this very bizarre part where um, somebody, I can't remember who it is, is, is kind of listing off the different challenges that America faces. One of them is climate change. Okay, fair enough. The others are North Korea, China, Russia, uh, various other threats to America, including uh, uh, cybersecurity issues, you know, foreign hacking and things like that. So the film almost explicitly teases this up. Like, this is what's at stake here. There are all these problems, you know, that we're having in this country, and they're making it harder for us to do all this, like, imperial stuff. Like, we can't confront our, like, foreign rivals. And yeah, we'll just throw climate change in, I guess, because <laughs> that's a problem. <laughs> Somebody at one point in this movie mentions that the problem with all this rancor is that it weakens trust in institutions. And I think that really underlines that fundamental question of who is this movie for? Like, what what rank-and-file voter watching this, what is their stake in continuing trust in America's institutions? I'll just give a quick list of a few of the people who are interviewed in this film. Uh, there's Niall Ferguson, Leon Panetta, Obama's defense secretary, Rahm Emanuel, the great Rahm Emanuel, <laughs> friend of the friend of the show, <laughs> <laughs> David Ignatius, a, a Washington Post columnist, Alan Greenspan, uh, Larry Summers. I mean, of course, Francis Fukuyama is in it <laughs> in sort of a token gesture like the rabble. There's also the leader of Black Lives Matter New York, <laughs> Hank Newsom, who is kind of like the most centrist Black Lives Matter leader that they could have gotten. Whose big claim to fame is that he spoke to Trump voters one time and they sort of liked him and also didn't murder him. Yeah, let, let's let's Which deal is... with that scene very quickly uh, because that really gets at the heart of like, considering that this guy is sort of the concession that the film is making to like, I don't know, to just something outside of the Beltway intelligentsia. Like, it is pretty amazing that this is the highlight of the movie, uh, at least uh, at least vis-a-vis him. He's describing going to protest a Trump rally, going up on stage, uh, and kind of being shouted at, and then the people at the Trump rally give him two minutes to make his point, and then uh, the point he makes is he starts saying stuff about how 
I love America. And, you know, they all like lots of applause. Uh, <laughs> he starts talking about the Bible. And basically, he's just he just says a bunch of things that are kind of vague in which they agree with. And I think it's important to note a few things about this scene. You know, the first is that the only reason that there's not a further rancor here is because he's not saying anything that's like particularly controversial. You know, you can get up and say, I love America. I mean, it's like it's State of the Union's like there's bipartisan applause for like so many of the lines because they're not fundamentally saying anything. You know, if he'd have gotten programmatic about police reform or something like that, I doubt that there would have been so much applause. So that's one thing. Another point about this scene is, you know, and this is this is very much in keeping with some of the other movies we've watched lately, is it sort of treats people listening to one another as an end in itself. You know, if only people kind of can have empathy for one another's positions, somehow that will play a role in bridging divides. And I uh, I don't really think that's true. I don't know. Alex, what was your reaction to this scene? I think it got at something that was very interesting to me about the concept of bipartisanship and this idea that I think is popular. It's certainly it's the animating idea of the rally to restore sanity as well, that if you get people from different backgrounds together and they just talk to each other, they'll figure it out. But there's two problems here. One is that these people in this movie, their concept of bipartisanship is literally that they just want to hang out together in like Georgetown and you know decide how to rule the world. And they're mad that politics makes it harder for them to do that. But the other is that bipartisanship in America doesn't mean that ever. It never means like Republicans and Democrats coming together to make sausage. It's always that one side is like, what I want is for the other side to acknowledge that I'm 100% right in every way about everything. And that scene, I think, got at that where you're like, yeah, these people can come together and agree that America is great and like Jesus rules or whatever, but you don't, you're not getting anything done. It doesn't tell you anything about bipartisanship in the country. It just says that like, yeah, like if you say a bunch of vague stuff, as you said, you can probably get a bunch of different people to agree with it, but it has nothing whatsoever to do with politics. Probably the key section of the movie is when director David Smick, who humbly bills himself on screen as <laughs> the change maker, <laughs> says that uh, Americans' divisions are no longer based just on party, race, or ethnicity. They are now, believe it or not, based on class and even geography. And as part of this monologue, he acknowledges that there were people in the Rust Belt who did not benefit from globalization. They lost everything when jobs moved overseas. He decides to trace this class resentment back to Vietnam. That's his starting point. You know, the working class fought overseas while the rich kids got college deferments. It seems an arbitrary starting point for me, but that's where he traces it back to. And then... He kind of concludes his history of this by noting that none of the bankers or almost none of the bankers during the financial collapse were prosecuted. And uh, the American public saw this. But unfortunately, there are populist politicians out there who go unnamed. In fact, I believe the only two politicians that the movie directly kind of makes fun of are Debbie Wasserman Schultz and, for some reason, Dan Quayle. Uh, <laughs> I, I was expecting to see if not Bernie Sanders, you know, at least Ilan Omar, you know, someone a little bit more, someone a little more current, someone a little more relevant. Donald Trump, unless I'm very much mistaken, is not mentioned in the movie. Or should I mean, that would be divisive to mention him, I think. But, 
you know, uh, certain certain populist politicians would choose to stoke this valid resentment, this valid frustration. And the real problem is not income inequality. It's opportunity inequality. I don't know if anyone wants to talk about the cow metaphor that he he describes and which is illustrated via kind of Terry Gilliam-ish animation. <laughs> but like he 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 describes, you know, capitalism, socialism, fascism as being like, well, with with socialism socialism's not going to work because if you have two cows and you give one cow to your neighbor, the neighbor is not going to have any incentive to milk the cow and therefore the economy doesn't work. But, you know, maybe, maybe somebody can finish the illustration. I've I've got it here. The this cow thing has always bugged me. The, the formulation is socialism, you have two cows, the government takes one and gives it to your neighbor. Communism, you have two cows, you give them to the government, the gov- government gives you some milk. Fascism, uh, you have two cows, you give them to the government, and the government then sells you some milk. I think the film uses some variations on these, but this is the basic idea. You have two cows uh, in capitalism, you have two cows, you sell one and buy a bull, and then Nazism, you have two cows, the government takes both and shoots you. That's like the classical version of it that I'm used to, that I think, I don't know, dates from the 1940s. But actually looking at this now, I realize the film uses kind of a different one. And uh, the problem that, that I observed in the film's version of this is that it seems like capitalism gets a little handicap in the metaphor because when the film discusses uh, how cows work under capitalism, the cows are able to breed and so the herd multiplies and somehow this is not happening under any other economic system. Like cows cease breeding and I just want to say capitalism is cheating here. Well, you know, in Soviet Russia, cow milks you. (laughs) (laughs) But okay, we, we should talk about how the film presents capitalism because what's so incredible about it is that it does make concessions to sort of vaguely occupy Wall Street-ish stuff and sort of, you know, uh, as Will mentioned, you know, the uh, the filmmaker says that, you know, no bankers were locked up and, you know, they got a bailout and stuff. And there are a few things that are odd about this. I mean, I think something that just fundamentally doesn't work about the film is that almost all the people they interview have had a role in creating all the problems the film is identifying. <laughs> so it's like, this is like the Beltway holding a mirror to, like, this is the Beltway as the, like, Spider-Man pointing at himself meme, basically, and being like, no, you're to blame for this. But in general, I find the idea of capitalism the film presents to be very inconsistent. So there's like this whole shtick from David uh, Smick that capitalism is failing. And then he got he has a guy who works at Soros Wealth Management come on and say, after the 2008 crisis, both parties walked away from capitalism. And, that, and that's the problem. You know, it's very, it's very confusing. There's also a lot of stuff in this movie about how big money is corrupting politics. But then when it's just kind of discussing the finer points of big money, I found it to be a very kind of small L libertarian conception of, of how money influences things. It's like money represents interest groups trying to capture a slice of the government pie was basically the argument in the film, which while being kind of true is also a a distinctly, I think, sort of libertarian view. Anyway, the film to me was just like all over the place on this stuff. And I found it very confusing. Well, to the idea that both parties moved away from capitalism, the argument it seems to be weaving is that what is currently called capitalism in the United States is is no such thing. It's it's oligarchy. They don't use that word, but it's like a couple of big companies have been able to manipulate the system and uh, stop the, the true engine of capitalism, which is competition. That's one of the kind of concessions that the movie makes to the left. It also ties into the American exceptionalist argument that we were making earlier. And I think the movie itself has a pretty demented take on American history. 
I mean, it, it sort of starts with this montage of like when America was great. And, you know, there's this incredible moment of like Frank Sinatra telling little kids not to bully somebody for being Catholic. And, and it's like, this is when America was great. We were this pluralistic society and, oh wait, it's 1945 and we've literally interred, you know, tens of thousands of Japanese Americans in camp. <laughs> That's one of the most sinister things the movie does, you know, in addition to its ahistoricism, one of the things it does is like in that clip, Frank Sinatra says, there are a hundred ways to go to church in this country. There are a hundred ways to practice your religion in this country, but they're all American. And then the movie does this thing where it conflates race and religion with political affiliation, which, you know, is not exactly the same thing. It's a very good point. And, you know, you'll get the tiger mom, Amy Chua, is sort of in the movie to kind of acknowledge that. There, I mean, there's an amazing thing earlier in this where she says something like, I think it's important that we don't whitewash our history, but a lot of students today just don't know what it is that makes America distinctive. And then there's this huge montage of like tanks and shit. And uh, yes. you're like, oh, this that is... It, it's absolutely unhinged. Like there'll be people give these like saccharine like monologues in this movie. And then there'll be like a flag fluttering in the breeze with like a, a jet flying <laughs> past it or something. It's crazy. Yeah. And with, with the cow thing, you know, even if you take the cow thing seriously, which you shouldn't because it's dumb. You're like, well, when did we have the good cow capitalism? You know, like, and the movie itself can never acknowledge that this stuff never happened. It never existed. We're never a pluralistic society. Like, at best, we have something approximating one starting in 1965. Like, at best, the capitalism that's good in this movie is from, like, 46 to 71 but a lot all the people in this movie would call that socialism that's right and and actually not surprising given who a lot of the uh, people in the feature in the movie are but in the bipartisanship section uh, which i know we've already covered but in that section they list a number of great like achievements of bipartisanship and among them are reagan's cuts to social security <laughs> in uh in the 1990s balancing the budget and then they also mentioned the civil rights act which I mean, it's true that there was bipartisan votes for that. I think celebrating that as like that's an achievement of bipartisan compromise is ridiculous, given how much militancy like brought the American system to the point where that bill could pass. And then the other thing it celebrates is this uh, First Step Act, which is more recent, which changed sentencing laws. But the point is what they're all idealizing. And this is explicitly the director himself says this. His big idealized uh, moment, which he gives you, is the stretch running from Reagan to Clinton which I think there's a pretty ironclad case you could make that all of the problems that the apparently well-meaning David Smick identifies in this movie, whether it's income inequality, you know, the kind of deregulation that has led to the crushing of, of small businesses and, you know, all these other things he complains about were created by the policymaking in that era. That period and the period after it as well, constituted one of the single largest wealth transfers from the bottom to the top in the history of any country ever. It was a period of tax cuts and deregulation, uh, faltering social spending. And yet that's what the big idea is like, let's just uh, let's just go back. <laughs> let's just go back to a time when the country was governed by Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich. What we're doing is repeating the mistakes of the 30s. I hear gunshots and I turn around and then I see a terrorist. My godfather was David Duke. Many Americans are lonely. So they reach out to these activist groups and political parties. And the effect is almost like a drug. It's not just social media, it's all kinds of media. You gotta turn it off. 
There are a lot of other issues that the movie raises. I don't know really what there is to say about the film section on social media and the need for outrage to fuel uh, journalism and the 24-hour news cycle. At one point, somebody says that algorithms are designed to, you know, elevate extreme points of view. And some of those extreme points of view that it highlights are Ann Coulter and uh, Bill Maher. And there's one guy who says to be in the center is by definition to not be retweeted oh okay i love that neil ferguson neil ferguson yeah oh that's who it was okay (laughs) and like let's just let's just go over once more the specific thing he says he says to be in the center is to not be retweeted so i love that neil ferguson is taking this political complaint and just being like people are not retweeting my like shitty takes on um, (laughs) on twitter i by the way i did check and he has two hundred thousand plus twitter followers so i'd say the the centrist grift is serving him pretty well. But also, you know, Neil Ferguson, not uh, somebody who has refrained from making inflammatory statements. It was, I think in 2013, he had to apologize for applying that John Maynard Keynes, you know, was into deficits and didn't care about future generations because he was, quote, gay and childless. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he, I mean, he arguably steps in it in this too, because earlier he's going on this thing about how you know, he's from Glasgow and in Glasgow, like Celtics and Rangers fans are out on the streets, like pummeling each other. But if you go to a baseball game, like nobody is hopped up on anything. But in fact, like he sort of suggests that the lack, you know, that the lack of anger is good in America, but that tribes are coming in and like gay. There's a montage then of people, of kids and gangs fighting each other. And he says, well, what makes an, a person become woke? Or for that matter, a neo-Nazi. In, in descending order of horror. <laughs> well, I, I can't remember which talking head says this, but there's a part where somebody's talking about the sort of climate of atomization and sort of anime in American life. And they say something like, um, so, you know, people are lonely and they're seeking, you know, community. I, and I agree with this, by the way. I mean, I think the the observation made in the film about how, you know, it's like people aren't going to church as much, certainly not going to the union hall, you know, these kind of traditional centers of community, uh, whether they were kind of uh, ultimately forces for good or not, have all sort of declined. People are much more atomized. That's, you know, a specific feature of neoliberal capitalism. But then this person goes on to say, and so people are feeling lonely. And so they, they join these activist groups and then the activist groups like poison them against other people, uh, which is such a bizarre line of thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think it's there's this idea that runs through that there aren't things to be mad about in American politics and that people are just manipulated into being mad, right? That people themselves, if, you know, there wasn't social media and there wasn't he who should not be named, which in this movie is Bernie Sanders, not Donald Trump, uh, <laughs> if they weren't around manipulating this alienation and if we gave people, you know, baby bonds, I think at one point, um, what's a guy's name, Jiminy Glick, who's the... <laughs> the, the director of the program i forgot his yeah jiminy glick this is worth pausing on because his idea to get to get kids back into capitalism is uh, every every child who is born gets a five thousand dollar loan he's he literally says let's make every child at birth a capitalist yeah and and they pay back that loan over the next 50 or 60 years <laughs> this is the this is the new american dream you'll be born into an indentured servitude to the state <laughs> It's like, ever, ever heard of a student loan? Well, what if you were born with one? (laughs) 
He never raises what would happen if you don't pay the loan back. That's a great question. Anyway, <laughs> that, that comes towards the end. That's part of the movie's prescriptive side. Another one of its prescriptions is that we need to focus a little bit more on the good billionaires. You know, there, there are a lot of bad billionaires who hoard wealth, the movie acknowledges. But there are some good people like, um, what's his name? The guy, the guy, the guy from Home Depot. The, yeah, the, the guy from Home Depot who helps make a program at NYU tuition free. And there's also Bill Gates, who we see in a picture. You know, these are some of the people who are using using their wealth for, for positive ends. And we need to focus more on them. Okay, so the Home Depot guy, I looked into him. First of all, I think he's worth about $4 billion. And uh, the, one of the first things it says on his Wikipedia page is that he is a major donor to the Republican Party. Um, <laughs> now, now, he amusingly appears in the, bi- in the big money section of the movie. He's, he appears... And he's mad about money being flooded into elections. Now, I, I looked up Home Depot on Open Secrets. Um, and, and in the 2020 campaign cycle, they spent $5.1 million on political contributions. Uh, and they spent $1.6 million on lobbying. Uh, they gave, like, in, individuals who work for Home Depot, which, like, this is kind of the loophole, is it's always, like individuals right um but you know it's it's one individual specifically yeah right who has the money to give joe biden and donald trump more than two hundred thousand dollars each which they did it's the management it's the ceos now amusingly under the home depot open secrets you can also see ranked beneath biden donald trump the republican senatorial committee and the national republican congressional committee is one Bernie Sanders, and I think that's probably the exception here. One hundred and twenty-seven thousand dollars. I'm guessing most of that was from uh, like minimum wage employees who work at uh, work at Home Depot. But anyway, it's very funny that this guy from Home Depot is literally in the movie complaining uh, about big money when it seems like he is a very he's kind of specifically an activist donor himself i found an article from politico in 2014 called the rich strike back and uh, uh i'll just read from it a bit here because it just makes all the more ridiculous the fact that this guy appears in the film in two dozen interviews the denizens of wall street and wealthy precincts around the nation said they are plenty worried about the shift in tone among top earners and the popularity of class-based appeals On the right, the rise of populists, including Kennedy Senator Rand Paul and Texas Senator Ted Cruz, still make wealthy donors eyeing 2016 uncomfortable. God, 2014 was a very stupid time, wasn't it? But wealthy Republicans who were having a collective meltdown just two months ago also say they see signs that the political zeitgeist may be shifting back their way and hope the trend continues. I hope it's not working, Ken Langone, the billionaire co-founder of Home Depot and major GOP donor, said of populist political appeals, because if you go back to 1933 with different words, this is what Hitler was saying in Germany. You don't survive as a society if you encourage and thrive on envy and jealousy. Lango's comments echo previous remarks from venture capitalist Tom Perkins, who likened the actions of some in Occupy Wall Street movement to the Kristallnacht attacks in 1938. Wow. Uh, so that's kind of the sphere that this guy uh, exists in. And, and uh, again, this is when I say the film's inconsistent, this is the kind of thing I mean. You get the director at one moment saying, you know, we have these divisions of class, the no bankers went to prison. And then you get a guy like this, who's an activist billionaire complaining about big money in politics, but who thinks class-based rhetoric post sort of 2010 with Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party is like Nazism in, in 1930s Germany. There's this idea in the movie as well that all of this other stuff like that's been boiling over, whether it's Trump or Sanders, is somehow artificial and that what people really want is meaningful disruption. There's this part at the end of the movie where they're saying, if politics was a product, 
Like we yes. haven't had any changes. You know, the people are clamoring for something new. And you're like, you fucking idiot. We had the change to the product in 2016. It was Donald Trump. Like there are signs that these things are changing. There are demands for other things. What they don't seem to understand is that the thing that's being rejected is the premise of the movie itself. Well, David Smick actually has a rejoinder to that. Uh, there's actually an interesting uh, kind of third way that we could pursue, which is startups. <laughs> and, you know, startups, uh, help they help level the playing field because did you know that women are kicking ass at startups? You know, they're, they're doing more startups than anyone. We, I want to I just uh, dwell for a moment on this absolutely deranged line that Alex just referred to, which is a part uh, towards the end of the movie when both uh, Arthur Brooks and Amy Chua are discussing liberal democratic capitalism explicitly. These are their words, not mine, as a bad product. And they're saying in a marketplace, usually when you have such low consumer satisfaction in a product, you know, somebody launches a a better product. And, you know, they're saying like an entrepreneur is going to come along and they're going to fix this. Now, (laughs) obviously, this is completely, like I said, deranged to be discussing I don't know, the, the socioeconomic order as a product. And if anything, the inclination to do that just speaks to the deep rot in this order, like that it's so cannibalized by market thinking. This is how people are discussing it. But secondly, and I think this goes back all the way to the beginning of the conversation where we were talking about David Brooks, liberal democratic capitalism is getting a, you know, a brand reboot constantly. It is always being relaunched. And a lot of the people that appear in this movie are, you know, the Smiths uh, and, and the storytellers who, you know, every few years they come up with a new version. Like, this is the new story that, that we're telling about what's basically the same thing. In the early 2000s, it was Tom Friedman and, and you know, the world is flat. Uh, and then the director of this movie had a, a, issued a strong rejoinder in the form of a book called uh, The World is Curved. Um, uh, <laughs> ah, yes, that book. Right. The book that everybody read. I'm sure I'm sure uh, everybody listening to this episode read it. Uh, his most recent book is called The Great Equalizer, How Main Street Capitalism Can Create an Economy for Everyone, a book which was praised by both uh, Paul Ryan and Larry Summers. The two genders. Yeah, yeah the two the two genders. Um, and uh, it, it's just noted here uh, in on, uh, on his Wikipedia page, the book identified the conditions that led to the unexpected rise of both 20 2016 Democratic primary candidate Bernie Sanders and Republican Donald Trump. So a real, real triumph of bipartisanship. But yeah, just to return to the basic point here, it seems to me that even if we are to kind of accept the basic contours of like the idea that liberal democratic capitalism is a product, it's being relaunched constantly. There's constantly a new versions of this product being launched. And, uh, you know, nothing ever gets better because uh, the problem is not branding. You know, Alex, as you were saying earlier, the film, like all of these films, treats partisanship, it treats division, it treats rancor as a sort of emotional pathology, like as and as something artificial, right? Like all of these movies do this in one way or another. It's always, you know, partisanship is something that politicians and cable news basically create. If you removed kind of those stimuli, somehow everybody would just agree in the sensible middle, which I guess is like cutting social security or whatever. I just think that they're terrible advocates for what they claim to be advocating for. Like there is a part where the the great part of America, they're like, if you were born in the bottom 20%, you had a one in four chance of making it out. And now it's only a 5% chance. And you're like, wait a second, like that sucks. Like if you're only bringing 25% of people born into poverty out of poverty, and that's like what you want to return to. 
Like, it's not good enough. While we're talking about dumb lines, did you like David Smick's line where he said, we're living in a zero-sum world. We're absolutely convinced that for one side to get ahead, the other side has to lose. Which, I mean, it would seem self-evident that actually the other side does have to lose for one side to get ahead, right? This seems like a problem with the way a lot of American history in the sort of early and mid-20th century is historicized, in both in kind of... I don't know, mainstream commentary and in movies like this. The film, for example, talks a lot about how, you know, I think the director at one point says, you know, it doesn't say anything about political parties in the Constitution. Um, you know, uh, and I mentioned the, the film mentions the Civil Rights Act and, and Niall Ferguson has an extended riff about how, you know, like, I'm a new American and when I go to vote, I want to know, like, where's the independent party or, or whatever. And I don't know, it strikes me that it's rarely acknowledged and the film doesn't acknowledge at all that, you know, the American system, you know, there's been multiple party systems. And when people idealize this kind of bipartisanship in the past, what they're actually talking about is a system where the parties were much more sort of geographically based than they were like ideologically based. Like the parties have only become these ideological formations in the last few decades. And so when they're talking about bipartisanship in the past, they're actually just talking about something fundamentally different. There still was ideology in the system. It just was expressed in a different way. It's also ahistorical, though, too, where you're like, okay, there's nothing about the two parties in the Constitution, but literally the second or the third election in the country had two parties in it. Like the party system dates from the year 1800. The Constitution itself is treated as a fixed document. Amy Chua says, you know, People don't love the Constitution, but it's great as it is. But the idea that you can amend the Constitution is never considered. You know, we discussed how, I forgot his name again, I'll say Jiminy Glick again, how the director of the movie talked about how he wants to put bankers in jail, but he seems much more upset about the carried interest loophole than about any of that. <laughs> like the policy things that are advocated themselves are really small. And if you think, even though they talk about dark money, they talk about inequality, the actual remedies for these things would all involve politics that these people would hate, right? Like you want to talk about breaking up big corporations like Neil Ferguson would freak out. Yeah. And actually, uh, that that point is relevant, too, in this in this section on electoral reform, because uh, now Ferguson seems to want there to be more parties. But it's like if the United States had a different voting system, in fact, if it had the voting system, the film is advocating, we can guarantee we pretty much guarantee it would produce outcomes uh, like if it had a first past the post system and there was no sort of Dem GOP duopoly, it would very quickly assume the character of like a European parliamentary system where you'd have a ton of parties and they would be far more ideologically based. You'd probably have a sort of centrist business party like, uh, what's it called, the FDP in Germany. You'd probably have something more like a traditional center-left party like the German SDP or something. Uh, you'd basically have the German system. You'd have a far-right party. You know, you'd have the you know progressive or social democratic element. Like the DSA would probably just be a party as well. Like, And I cannot believe that any of these people would would want an outcome like that. Um, <laughs> in fact, I think I think we'd be pretty certain that they wouldn't. Anyway, you know, the film basically ends with a montage of, uh, you know, the troops. There's more uh, stock footage of kind of the good old days, which is, you know, uh, something else that uh, you always see in these movies. Uh, you know, I tried to look up the reception of this film. And, you know, we weren't joking at the beginning when we all found ourselves asking, who is watching this movie? And I think the answer genuinely is not very many people. <laughs> as far as I can tell, 
this movie was not reviewed by any major newspaper, despite the fact that the, the guy who directs directed it is, you know, uh, a pretty well-established guy and has kind of the ear of, uh, you know, a lot of uh, powerful, important people. On Rotten Tomatoes, the reviews are from places like People's World. There's a reviewer called Jack Hawkins, who uh, is with an august outlet called Battle Royale with Cheese. Um, <laughs> and uh, he, he likes the movie. He called it... He co- he called it uh, compelling with a message that's as cautionary as it is optimistic. Wow. Um, uh, uh, uh called it hopeful. Um, Shakya.com said suggestions <laughs> worth uh, worth looking into. Oh, uh, that that was me. I I'm the manager of Shakya. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. Well, we'll we'll edit this out. Um, and uh, yeah, Hollywoodintoto.com said this thoughtful documentary pretends fake news doesn't hurt the body politic. Uh, I, I I don't Wait, know. Wait, that's that's not ha- true. It's a... I thought the film had a strong critique of <laughs> yeah. uh, fake news. So. I mean, come on, be fair to the movie. <laughs> but you know, I found this a few weeks ago when I reviewed uh, the Reunited States, which is a film quite literally co-produced by Van Jones and Megan McCain. Uh, and as far as I can tell, it, I mean, it did get a very quick write-up. I mean, a kind of capsule write-up in the New York Times, which was not very kind to it. It got a, a write-up, a kind of proper write-up in the Daily Beast. And besides the write-up that I did for Jacobin, I could not find this film getting kind of a major review anywhere. It was discussed on The View for obvious reasons, because, you know, Megan McCain is, is uh, you know, is on The View. I don't think there's ever really much of a market uh, for this stuff. And actually, this goes back to the the conversation we had at the beginning of the uh, of the episode about something completely different. You know, who is the market for this stuff? Often, you know, the answer is not really uh, anybody, at least in the sense that there's not an organic constituency of people who are flocking to this. I just think the movie, uh, like a lot of these films, is such a perfect metaphor um, for why centrism doesn't work because you know it takes for one thing because it shows like there is no kind of mass movement for like fixing the deficit and like privatizing social security if you eliminated fox news and msnbc and kind of the political ethos is that they articulate it wouldn't just be like everybody suddenly flocking to like the center and, and joining like Rahm Emanuel and Larry Summers. That's not what would happen. But secondly, because, you know, we've talked a lot about the inconsistencies in this movie, you know, how it can simultaneously be like anti-banker and then its solution is startups, how it's like uh, the problem is that capitalism is failing, but then also the problem is that uh, the United States isn't capitalist uh, enough <laughs> or whatever. I think this shows that in the same way that uh, centrist lawmaking, bipartisan lawmaking, very rarely yields good outcomes, because if you take two completely different policy ideas that are radically opposed to one another and based on inverse premises and take the median point between them, you're probably not going to end up with anything good. You're, you know, I mean, it's like the Affordable Care Act kind of gives you like, uh, I mean, apart from the consumer protections that it enshrined that are important with pre-existing conditions, everything else about it, it's like you get the state making you buy something uh, and then you also get you know this big government handout to insurance companies essentially it's not just the median point between those two things is not very good you get in some ways less competition uh, and also this kind of weirdly like technocratic liberal thing at the other end and it's the median point between them and this same kind of contradiction it seems to me is manifest in like the narrative structure of this movie and in the arguments it makes when you take two competing narratives about what's wrong and you just kind of find the median point between them, you find some kind of narrative through line that helps you sort of tell a vague story about this, the story that you're going to end up with is not going to be very coherent. And this movie is not very coherent at all, just like centrism. We have to come together as a country by breaking the habit of contempt. The problems we're having today, they pale in comparison 
to the problems we had in, in advance of the Civil War. We've prevailed over those. We will prevail over these. It took a global pandemic to finally bring us together. A lot of Americans made us proud, but will this unity last? We want to come together, but we have to do it in a real way. Washington's not going to change from the top down. It's going to change from the bottom up. When we elect new representatives who say the most important thing to them is not party, it's country. Well, I don't know if you guys remember Donald Trump, uh, but he just he just released a statement on official the office of Donald J. Trump letterhead, a one sentence or a two sentence statement where he says, I hope everyone remembers when they're getting the COVID-19 often referred to as the China virus vaccine, that if I wasn't president, you wouldn't be getting that beautiful quote shot unquote for five years at best and probably wouldn't be getting it at all. I hope everyone remembers exclamation mark. So that's a statement that he put out. And like, don't don't you just kind of miss some of that energy a little bit? (laughs) Well, Joe Biden has not been, you know, he's not been very entertaining because we don't we don't really see very much of him. He did that town hall a few weeks ago where he said something about how he likes babies more than people. But I feel like that's how we that's that's like the best we've gotten out of it. There was a Washington Post op ed yesterday where the thesis was, you know, comedians are having trouble satirizing Joe Biden. They don't know how to get an angle angle on him and i think the subhead of it was something like come on make it a little easier joe and don't articles like that just kind of make you feel like you're going insane biden should be the easiest person to parody yeah he's old he's like mr magoo you know but i think it's just because trump like said he was senile nobody feels like they can do it but just make him old the article pointed out that saturday night live has still not recast it's joe biden after jim carrey uh triumphantly bowed out of the role well he was so good how could you follow that amazing performance (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. it's like they they put the biden jersey up on the wall (laughs) actually you know it was great seeing that article on twitter because there were a ton of replies to it that were like and you know what there shouldn't be any satire of him you know so we should so i think we should just appreciate a decent caring man and not give him a hard time you know totally no irony at all i mean there's a model here which is the one that uh, we explored i don't know earlier in the pandemic at some point when we talked about dana carvey and his uh, george hw bush impression which as we learned from a weird obituary that dana carvey wrote for george hw uh, bush uh, bush senior this is bush loved the impression because there was nothing mean or cruel about it and in fact it didn't really make fun of him at all yeah it didn't really extend beyond <laughs> saying stuff like uh, that wouldn't be prudent. That was kind of the limit of it. Anyway, I definitely miss Donald Trump's tweets. I'm not going to lie. Although today I did happen to stumble across an incredible Wikipedia page. There is a Wikipedia page called list of nicknames used by Donald Trump. Uh, it yeah. has uh, eight separate sections, <laughs> not including notes and references and see also. It has sections for domestic political figures, foreign leaders, media figures, groups of people, other people, organizations, <laughs> television programs, miscellaneous. Some of these I was not even aware of, but I'm glad they've been preserved uh, you know, here by somebody because I think they're all vital artifacts and I had not even heard about them. So some guy called Randolph Texas Ailes, Ailes, who was a director of uh, the Secret Service, apparently Trump called him Dumbo. For Joe Biden, there's a whole bunch of nicknames because of course Donald Trump could never settle on a single nickname. So he was 1% (laughs) Joe, Basement Biden, Beijing Biden, China Joe, Corrupt Joe, 
Crazy Joe Biden, Quid Pro Joe, Sleepy Joe, Sleepy Creepy Joe, Slow Joe, and Joe Hyden. I mean, <laughs> there are quite literally hundreds here. And yeah, he also had them for like groups and people that I didn't even know Trump interacted with. So apparently Penn Jillette was goofball atheist <laughs> Penn. <laughs> it rolls off the tongue. <laughs> Comcast was Concast, uh, which is pretty good. I'm looking at this here and I like the ones that are a little bit more conceptual, the ones that aren't just like crazy Jim Acosta or sloppy Steve Bannon. I like he called Chris Cuomo Fredo. And I like that he called Stephen Colbert that guy on CBS. <laughs> I, I like he, he called uh, some other good ones. He called Face the Nation, Deface the Nation, uh, Meet the That's Meet the, the Press, one. Meet the Depressed, <laughs> Morning Joe, Morning Joke. <laughs> oh man! I believe that Chuck Toad is the host of Deface the Nation. Chuck Toad, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyway, man, I mean, we could do we could honestly do a whole episode on these. I feel like we'll bring them up again. But uh, Alex, we've occupied quite a lot of your time when I suggested that watching the film wasn't mandatory. I never dreamed that you would, uh, you know, you'd brave the storm and you would uh, subject yourself to this along with us. So thank you very much for joining us. Where can people uh, find your writing? Uh, at thenewrepublic.com. Never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> Little publication you may have heard called uh, The New Republic. Uh, check it out. If you're not familiar with Alex, which I'm assuming if you listen to the show, you've, uh, you've probably heard us mention him before, but a, a truly great uh, writer, part of the great ensemble cast of uh, essayists and columnists they now have at The New Republic. Alex, we would love to have you back sometime. Uh, this is a lot of fun. Thank you for taking us uh, on that whirlwind tour of the wild world of uh, David Brooks. Uh, let's do it again sometime. Yeah, I had a great time. I'd love to, I'd love to be back. Now watch this drive. What clouds garden I've looked at clouds from both sides now, from up and down, and still somehow, it's cloud illusions I recall, I really do no cloud.